Good evening. So we are picking up in chapter five of Megillas Esther. And I just wanted to recap a little bit what brought us here and also get a sense of the timeline a little bit. So last week we had a bit of the more depressing chapter. Things are going sour, things were going bad. Haman is in his rise to power. He is on a mission to annihilate the Jewish people. He gets permission from the king and uh, the Jewish people are thrown into mourning and prayer. And Mordechai sends Esther on a mission that she's going to have to go at risk of her own life into Ahasuerus' throne room in order to beseech the king for mercy. But just to get a sense of the overall timeline, because then we're going to zero in on the 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 narrow more narrow timeline so the 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 feast that the megillah begins with happens in the third year of Ahasuerus's reign so in the third year Vashti meets her end and it's sometime after that that a search for a new queen is made and let's say a year or two because it's going to be a year where Esther is sort of being prepped within the king's palace to go before the king. And we know from the explicit verse that it's in the seventh year of the king's reign that Esther becomes queen. So, so it's the third year of the king's reign that Vashti is deposed. In the seventh year, four years later, about, is when Esther becomes queen. And what year is it that Haman begins his plan? So that's also explicit in a verse that it was in the 12th year of the king's reign in the month, uh, in the first month, which is the month of Nisan. That is when Haman cast his lots to determine when to, when to wipe out the Jewish people. So that was on, that was in the 12th year. So just to take note, Esther has been queen for five years before she, before this happens. So it gives a little more context to the verse that we read last week where Mordechai turns to Esther and says, Esther, for all we know, this is why you became queen. She's been queen for five years. She's been maybe wondering, you know, why did these miraculous events occur? How of all people was I chosen? What's the message? What's the meaning? And now it begins to come to light. So Haman cast his lots. It doesn't say what day of the month it was. And the commentaries wonder about what day of the month it was that he cast his lots. But we know what day of the month it was that he sent his mess, sent the message out. That's explicit. That is, um, actually, I put it on the source sheet in source number one, Megillus Esther chapter three, where it says, and the king's scribes were summoned in the first month on the 13th day. <clears throat> so the first month is the month of Nisan, the 13th day of Nisan, that's when the messengers go out with the letters, which we discussed more in detail, what were the contents of the letters were, but that would, <clears throat> that would announce the date of the destruction of the Jewish people. We talked about that, according to many, they didn't actually say who was going to be wiped out. There were different letters sent to the governors and to the commoners, <clears throat> but the letters all went out excuse me, <clears throat> on the 
13th of the month of Nisan. Now we know from verse 15 over there, also on the sources, that they went forth in haste. So this was all carried out right away. They, and they're getting the message out immediately. Um, now, last week, we primarily did, dealt with chapter four. And the very end of chapter four ended as follows. It's source number two. Then Esther ordered to reply to Mordechai, go assemble all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast on my behalf. So remember, Esther and Mordechai had a, this whole back and forth where they were sending messages back and forth. The commentary, as well as the sages understand, this was all in one day. This was all immediate. All this back and forth happened on the day that the edict went forth. And Esther says in that verse, go assemble all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days, day and night. So they're going to fast for three days. And then I will go to the king. It sounds like she's not going to go to the king until they have fasted for three days. Although we'll see that's not so, so clear because other, many understand that she goes before that. And then in the next verse, the last verse of the chapter, of chapter four reads, so Mordechai passed, vayavor Mordechai, and Mordechai passed and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. <clears throat> so the Talmud comments on this word, vayavor Mordechai, and Mordechai passed. And it notes that it's a bit of a strange language because what did he pass? So one opinion is he passed over a small river, which was that Shushan was, the, there was the, the capital area of Shushan, the palace section, and then there was the, the rest of the city. And Mordechai was inside the palace area and there was some kind of moat or something in between. And he passed and went out to his fellow Jews to gather them. That's one explanation. However, the Talmud has another comment, and this is, this is here on the sources. Verse, it's in source two, verse 17. So Mordechai passed, Rav says, Rav said this means that he passed the first day of Passover as a fast day. So remember that it was on the 13th of Nisan that the letters went forth to, that Haman sent out his letters. What day is Pesach? What day is Passover? The 15th of Nisan. So it's just two days later and they're fasting, right? So the, again, there's different ways that the commentaries understand. Some understand that they began fasting on the 13th itself. The letters went forth from Haman, they got wind of it, and they fasted on the 13th of Nisan, the 14th of Nisan, and the 15th of Nisan. Others understand that the letters went out on the 13th. There was a back and forth between Mordechai and Esther. By the time the Jews started fasting, it wasn't until the 14th. So they fasted the 14th of Nisan, the 15th of Nisan, and the 16th of Nisan. <clears throat> but either way, they were fat, either way you understand, they were fasting on the 15th of Nisan, which means that that year for Pesach, they did not observe the mitzvah of eating matzah on Pesach, at least on the first night of Pesach. If they were keeping two nights, which isn't clear if they would have or not in, you know, in exile at that time, but then maybe they were able, would be able to eat on the second night. But at least on the first night of Pesach, they certainly were not eating, they were fasting. That's this comment of the Talmud here. So Mordechai passed, 
he passed the first day of Passover as a fast day. Now, some commentaries raise the question, well, it wasn't just Mordechai. Nobody, nobody ate matzah that, that year. Everybody was fasting. So why does it pinpoint that Mordechai passed Passover without, without fasting, without eating matzah? So we're not going to answer that question right now. Rabbi Yonasang Ibschitz has an elaborate answer for that, but I can share it with you another time. <clears throat> okay. So let's start chapter five. So here is source number three on the sources. We begin chapter five. Now it came to pass on the third day. So remember, Mordechai has told Esther that you have to go. And es Esther has like, I can't just go into the king. We all know, everybody knows that if you go into the king without being invited, without being summoned, then the, the sentence is death, unless he raises his scepter towards you. So. Mordechai said, Esther, this is what it's all about. It, who knows if it's not for this that you became queen. So here she goes. She's ready to go. And it came to pass on the third day. The third day of what? I think the most simple reading is it was the third day of the fasting. Others understand it was the third day from when the edict went out from Haman, the second day of fasting. So she goes it came to pass on the third day that Esther clothed herself regally <clears throat> and she stood in the inner courtyard of the king's house, which is referred to in the verse as Beis HaMelech, opposite the king's house. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal palace, which is not Beis HaMelech, but Beis HaMalchus. I'm just pointing these out because it refers to different rooms in this verse, opposite the entrance of the house. So the commentaries point out that a number of miracles occurred here or a number of events that got arranged just so that it would work out for Esther. Um, and that the, the, the Megillah is, point, is, is, is pointing them out for us as we read here. So first of all, we should just mention Esther clothes herself regally. Now this was momentous because up till now, Esther has resisted and resisted being queen, she would not accept when it was time to choose a queen, she would not accept any, you know, she would not choose any makeup or anything. She has been resisting the, uh, the role of queen. And now she embraces it because now she has a mission to accomplish. She has to go to Ahasuerus and she has to appease him and she has to maybe even seduce him. And she dresses up in her most regal fashion and appears before the king. Um, so, and what this means also is she has to do all she can. We can't just completely say, God, you take care of it. We have to do our hishtadlus. We have to put in our own effort and she has everyone praying for her. Uh, fasting for her, but she has to do her part. And part of her part is to position herself in the best manner to be accepted by the king. So she goes in dressed up as regally appearing like the queen. And she's very fortunate because the king is there. That's number one, that the king is actually present. Because as the Maharikara, Rabitzakara points out, that if the king wasn't present, and rather just some of his officers were there, 
Well, they might have said, well, Esther attempted to come to the king without being summoned. Off with her head, right? So the very fact that the king was there is number one, how amazing how that worked out. Number two, um, she she goes to she goes to stand in the inner courtyard of the king's house, opposite the king's house. She's in this courtyard, which is outside the king's house, the base house. That's like his personal quarters. And that's where you might expect him to be. Seemingly, the verse is saying she was expecting him to be there, but that's not where he was. He was the king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal palace. He was somewhere else. He was in this base hamalchus, this other section, and he was opposite the entrance, and he was able to see her. It says next verse thing. It came to pass when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard. So he sees her. He's sitting apparently in a place that he doesn't. He's not expected to be sitting, and he's able to see her, even though normally. You, you wouldn't expect this throne to be facing the doorway, but it's exactly opposite the doorway. He's able to see her. And that way he's able to respond right away, grant her life. Again, nobody can intervene. The guards can't say, well, she came, she didn't have permission. She immediately is able to raise his scepter and announce that it's okay. You know, I approve of her being here. And so it says in verse two, and it came to pass when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard that she won favor in his eyes and the king extended to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. The Megillah is highlighting it's in his hand already. You think he walked around all day with the scepter in his hand? Nope. But again, miraculously, it's perfect. It happens to be in his hand right now. He doesn't have to reach for it. He doesn't have to ask for it. It's ready to go. And he's able to because this is what it takes. He has to reach out his scepter and point it at Esther in order to grant her life. And he does. And Esther approached and touched the end of the scepter. Now the king realizes that if she is coming in, risking her life, then she must have a very good reason for this. He also can see she doesn't look so good. She's been, and that's because she's been fasting for already um, two, maybe three days. Again, we said last week, not necessarily straight. They probably ate in the evening, but they're fasting. She doesn't look great. And he realizes something, something is amiss. So the king says, the king said to her in verse three, what concerns you, Queen Esther? Queen Esther, and what is your petition? Even to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. So he's offering her, you know, half the kingdom. A tremendous, tremendous offer that he makes to her, but half and only half. You know, he's not, she's not going to get more than him, right? So a person doesn't give up more than half. That's what's pointing out over here. The Yotzef Lekach, he says, you know, the Torah tells us that we are, or the, the, the Talmud tells us that, that a man should honor his wife more than himself. So he says, naturally, a person can't honor his wife that much more than himself, but maybe a little bit. But that's because a, a, a man recognizes that his wife is his partner in growth, in spiritual growth, in our mission. So a Jew is told you have to honor your wife even, even more than yourself, because you appreciate that a wife is not just to fulfill, fulfill my own needs and my own purposes, 
but that a husband and wife are partners in something greater. But Achashverosh, that wasn't the case. For Achashverosh, his wife was just, just something that he could benefit from. And so for him, he's not going to honor her more than himself, but he's willing to give up to, up to half his kingdom. That's, uh, and again, it's obviously most likely an exaggeration, but he realizes it, but that's the words he chooses anyways. But the, the, the doesn't choose to say, I'll give you my whole kingdom, right? Up to half. And, but again, it's because he sees there's something very, very serious going on. So here it is. It's the moment we've been waiting for, right? Everybody's been fasting. Everybody has been waiting for this moment. So Ahasuerus says, Esther, what is it that you desire up to half the kingdom? So what should Esther say? Well, let her get down on her hands and knees and say, Ahasuerus, my people, you have, you have to save my people. There's a terrible verdict. There's a terrible edict up out against my people, right? That's what she should say right now, but she doesn't. Verse four, what does Esther say? Esther says, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. He invites the king and he invites Haman, she, sorry, she invites the king, Ahasuerus, and she invites Haman to a banquet. What a missed opportunity, right? Ahasuerus just offered her anything, half the kingdom. She could have pleaded for the, the lives of the Jewish people. For some reason, she doesn't do that. So we have really two questions that we need to ask, two very, very important questions. Number one, why doesn't she ask right now to save the Jewish people? And number two, for, if for whatever reason she wants to wait to invite the king to this feast and then ask her, to ask him, well, why does she also invite Haman? What does Haman have to do with anything? Why is she inviting Haman to the very same feast? So we'll start with the first question. Why, why doesn't she ask right now? Why does she, why does she invite the king to a feast? So the Yosef Lekach offers four reasons. Four reasons to wait, four reasons not to ask right now. Reason number one is very simple. She, she just broke what seems to be one of the most severe laws in the kingdom. She just busted into the, into the king's throne room without a summons, without permission. And it was only by the kindness and the grace of King Ahasuerus that she is going to survive this. He just saved her life, basically. Is this the best time to ask for something more? You'd be, you'd, Esther, I just, have I not done enough for you? I just allowed you to live. And now you're going to, to ask for this whole, you know, for a whole nation to be saved. One, one thing at a time. So perhaps it wasn't the best time 
in terms of that. Rather, rather bring him to a banquet. Get, show him a good time. And uh, then the timing will be better. Then he'll be in a better mood. And that's the time to ask. That's reason number one. Just not a good time. She just was saved. She just sort of asked for something. To ask for something else is not, it wouldn't be good timing. Number two, she just risked her life to walking here. So besides for what we just said, but can you imagine how frightened she is as she's walking in there? Is it a time that she'll be able to plead her case? Is it a time that the right words will come to her? She'll be able to make the right arguments? No, she'd be too, she's too afraid. She's too nervous. It's not a good time to start pleading the case of the Jewish people. Rather, again, let her, let her invite him to a feast. They'll be sitting at a table. They'll be comfortable. They'll be schmoozing. She'll feel much more comfortable. She won't be totally frightened. She just risked her life. And then she'll be able to make her case in a more um, clear and uh, constructive way and coherent. And that's another second reason not to ask right now. It's not going to come across properly. Number three is that she wants to get the king mad at Haman specifically. Remember, the king and Haman are like this right now. We saw how much trust the king had in Haman. He gave Haman his ring. He believes in Haman. He believes every word that Haman tells him. And so Haman is quite the foe to take on. And even if, even if Esther would say Haman this, Haman that, and she's the queen, but first of all, Haman is very slick. And Ahasuerus really listens to Haman. So she has to turn Haman or Ahasuerus against Haman. So, and the best time to get him angry at Haman is when the king is really happy. The Yosef Lekach says that a person gets extra angry when they're very happy. In other words, imagine somebody's making a wedding they're for their child. They're at like the, the, the happiest time, but then something goes wrong. Wow, do they get angry at that point? Somebody who's at the top of their, you know, top of the world, and then something goes wrong, gets even more angry. So he says she wanted to put in a situation where he'd be in such a great mood that when something would, hap would happen that would anger him, the anger would just be, would burn fiercely and he would be very quick in carrying out his wrath against Haman. That is reason number three. And reason number four is actually Esther, like we said, has been doing all she can to avoid Ahasuerus. Up till now, every time that Ahasuerus has summoned her, it's been against her will. I mean, she goes because she has no choice, but she has never enticed Ahasuerus into sexual relations before. She's, she's not involved. If, if she's forced, then she's forced. So, so here, she walks into the throne room. So, and she needs to appease the king, but she doesn't want to do it in that way. She doesn't want to do that. So, so her strategy 
her strategy is bring him to her place because for two reasons. Number one, the, the feast was ready right now. So it was going to be an immediate feast. And we see that from the next verse because the, the king says, hurry, quickly bring Haman because the food's ready. Did, the, the, everything's ready to go. So there's no time for any, any, anything to happen right now. And not only that, but in her place, in the, in, the, in the queen's quarters, that's not where the king has relations. As, as, as happened with Vashti, he would, he, summoned, he would summon Vashti to him. When he would want any girl to come to him, he would summon her to him. He would summon the queen. So, so at this point, in, in, this, in this position, she doesn't want to be the one who is engaging the king in sexual activity. And therefore, she says she, she doesn't want to... She doesn't want to get too close with him right now. Just come to a feast, you know, and we'll we'll go from there. And then she is protected because she's in her own she's in her own house or her, the queen's quarters. And then she doesn't have to be concerned about that. So that is a fourth reason. The last reason is actually a little bit difficult for me to understand because at the end of the day, if it comes to saving the Jewish people, then you do she has to do whatever she can, which is the simple understanding of how many understand here that she was actually willing to put her, herself out there in order to save the Jewish people at this point. But Yosef Lekhoff says, no, she specifically was not going to engage the king in sexual activity, rather just invite him to a feast in her place immediately, come right now, the food's ready. And once she'd be in her own quarters, then she would be safe from his clutches. So those are four reasons offered why she did not ask right now. Rather, she invited the king to a feast. Number one, it's not a good time to ask because she just had her life saved by the king. Number two, um, she was just very scared at this point, and she wouldn't have been able to present her case in a coherent fashion. Number three, she wanted to get the king angry at Haman at a time that he would be in a great joyous mood, like at a feast. Then his anger would burn. His wrath would be the greatest, and he would exact punishment on Haman in the fiercest way. And number four was to protect herself from, um, from consensual act sexual activity here, where it would still all be anything that, would, that happened up till now was the king forcing her, and that's how she wanted to leave it. She didn't want to be the one to initiate anything with the king. So she calls him to her quarters immediately for a meal, and that way nothing can happen at this, at this juncture. So that's the first question. Why did she not ask him right now? Now, the second question is, she, so she invites him to a feast. But why did she also invite Haman? Why did she also invite Haman? So to this question, the Talmud actually asked this question. And the Talmud gives 12 answers. So we are not going to go through all 12 answers, but we'll go through a few. And, uh, and we'll see other commentaries add, add more answers. I didn't count how many we're actually going to offer now. I think about six or seven, but we'll try to go through them a little quicker. And then we'll have an idea that actually kind of ties it all together. So, so if you look on the source sheet, Talmud Megillah 15b, the sages talking at Brisa, what did Esther see to invite Haman to the banquet? Why did she also invite Haman? Why not just Ahasuerosh? So Rabbi Elazar says, she hid a snare for him, like a trap. 
as they get stated, let their table become a snare before them. Kind of enigmatic, vague, doesn't really tell us exactly what he means. She wanted to entrap Haman. Maybe even before we explain this, the Manos Alevi, Shlomo Al-Kabet says, why do you need 12 answers? Why does the Talmud have to give 12 answers? So the Manos Alevi says that actually each answer of the Talmud is coming to justify another um, claim that we might have against Esther for her behavior. Really to answer another question. Why did she do this and why didn't she do this? So each of these separate answers can answer one of those questions. So this first one, this first answer, Rabbi Elazar, she hit a snare for him. So he explains that you might ask, why is she inviting Haman to the feast? She is empowering Haman. This is the last thing we need. Haman is already on top of the world. He's the second in command here. He's second to the king. Everybody respects him. The only person who doesn't respect him is Mordechai. So who is she he may be afraid of? Who is he afraid doesn't respect him? Besides her Mordechai, Esther, because he knows, he doesn't know Esther's Jewish, but he knows that Esther grew up in Mordechai's house. So the one person that he might be a little bit afraid of is Esther. And now Esther invites him to a feast. Now he's not afraid of anyone. Now he's going to just, you know, he's, I mean, he's done enough already, but he's now going to be even more powerful to carry out his will against the Jews. What is Esther doing inviting him to the feast? So comes along Rabbi Elazar and he says, she is entrapping him. She is hiding a snare for him. How is she entrapping him? Because Haman is going to be so happy that he was invited to the queen's feast. In fact, he expresses it. If you jump ahead to verse um, 12, towards the end of the chapter, Haman says to his family, Esther did not even bring anyone to the party that she made except me. And tomorrow too, I'm invited to her with the king. Haman is so proud that he's been invited to this feast with Esther. So what's he doing? What's he going to do? He's going to sing the praises of Esther to the king. He now, he, basically Esther is winning Haman over to her side. And he, Haman's going to be praising Esther to the king. So then when Esther then turns around and tells Ahasuerus about Haman and what he, what he has planned for her. So then what's Haman going to try to do? He's going to say, actually, no, she's really terrible. Everything that I said about her yesterday, how great she is and trustworthy and everything. Don't believe it. I changed my mind, right? But it's, it's too late, Haman, right? You already, you already praised Esther and now you're going to try to turn around and change it? So Esther, what she does here is she ensnares him. She traps him by winning him over to her side. He's going to sing her praises. And then when she turns on him, he's not going to have anything that he can say against her. Then the Talmud goes on. A second answer, Rabbi Yeshua, I skipped that one. Rabbi Meir says, she invited him in order that he be near her at all times. So that he would not take counsel and rebel against Ahasuerus when he discovered that the king was angry with him. So this is a little bit of a strange answer. Um, it's, it's, it's written, the bold is the exact text of the Talmud, and then the 
the, the non-broad is commentary. It's this is actually, this line is based on the commentary of Rashi that, that she was, well, actually Rashi says a little bit more than this. So we'll, we'll speak that out in a moment. So, so Rabbi Mayer says she wanted to keep him close so that he would not take counsel and, and rebel. So what does this mean? What is this coming to tell us? So this is coming to answer, says the Mano Salevi. Why, did, why is she delaying? You might ask Esther, what's the delay? Kind of like what we asked before. You know, why does she make a feast? Why is she delaying? Just get on with it. Let, just get rid of Haman. Why are you delaying? So what Rabbi Meir in the Talmud is, is, is saying over here is that if she would, and this really is another answer to our previous question, why didn't she just ask Ahasuerus in the throne room? So if she would ask Ahasuerus in the throne room, so then <clears throat> let's say Ahasuerus would agree to her request. Well, there, Haman isn't present. So, and Haman has a lot of connections in the palace. If Haman gets word that Ahasuerus is mad at him, so he actually is very powerful. And, and Esther can see that things are going very well for Haman at this point. And when things are going well for someone, you have to be very careful. So they're going so well that she was scared that he could even mount a rebellion against Ahasuerus. And so she had to take him out in the presence of Ahasuerus, but it would be quick. If there was a delay, if there was a delay between when she, when Ahasuerus decided to kill Haman to execute him and actually when it actually happens, when he's actually captured, there was a concern that he may, might be able to mount a rebellion. And therefore she made sure to keep him close, that he would be present when she reported to Ahasuerus that what, was, what, what, needed, what needed to be done with Haman. Okay, then the Talmud goes on. Another answer, Rabbi Yehuda, we're skipping that one. Rabbi Nehemia says, she did this that the Jewish people would not say we have a sister in the king's house and consequently neglect their prayers for divine mercy. Um, oh, so we have a question here. Is this her plan or Mordechai's? Great question. Um, it's, it's not clear. It seems that this is her plan because Mordechai actually told her, go beseech the king. And she doesn't do that. She doesn't just go before the king and, and beseech him. She does seem to change the plan. And uh, we'll come back to that in a moment. So it's a great point. So, uh, so on this answer, though, Rabbi Nehemia says that she did this. She invited how much the people wouldn't say, we have a sister in the king's house. And they won't, wouldn't pray. They wouldn't daven anymore. And this is coming to answer, explains the Mano Salevi. How could she invite Amon? The people are, her brethren, her Jewish brethren, they're brokenhearted. And Haman is their, is their great enemy. And here she's inviting Haman to, the, to, you know, to, her, uh, to her feast. It's like you know, kicking them while they're down. They're already down. They're already upset. And now it's, it's getting even worse. How could she do that to her own people? And the answer that Rabbi Nehemia says is that's exactly what she intended. She wanted them to, to, to think that she had turned against them because they, she didn't want them to put their trust in her alone. She didn't want them to stop praying, to stop fasting, 
to stop beseeching God for mercy, to just, oh, you know, the, the queen is Jewish. We're fine. We'll be taken care of. Oh, the, the president, you know, he loves Jews. We'll be fine, you know, or whatever, you know, the, rely on this person or that person. No. Esther says, I'm going to make it seem like I've turned on them so that they will have to keep, they will keep praying and not, uh, and not stop. Um, Rabbi Yossi says, she acting in this manner so that Haman will always be on hand for her. So this is similar to what we said before that she wanted to keep him close, but here it's not because she was afraid that he would rebel, but rather um, she wanted him close to maybe trip him up, to get him to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, as we'll see actually happens. She's gonna, he's gonna fall on top of her and that's not gonna help his, his case. So she wanted to keep him close in order that she finds some way to trip him up, you know, literally and figuratively, I guess. And, uh, and that way she'll be able to, to take him out, to get him eliminated. Okay, then the Gemara has, the Talmud has a number of other answers. Rabbi Shem ben Manasseh is on the top of page two. Rabbi Yeshua ben Karcha. And then it says, Rabbi Gamliel says Achashverosh was a fickle king. He was a waffler. He would go back and forth. And what does that mean? What is that telling us? So here it's what it's telling us is that what Rabbi Gamliel is, is answering is that the same question we asked before, if, if the king loves her so much that she walks into the throne room and he sees her and not only does he let her live, but he says, I'll give you half the kingdom. So why doesn't she ask right then? And, and the answer is because he's fickle. The answer is because even if she would say, um, I want you to kill Haman, I want you to rescind Haman's decree. Well, by the time that was carried out, it might not be carried out. Even if he agreed at this moment, but again, Hamong has to be there. Not because she was afraid that Hamong would rebel, but she was afraid that, that Haman would convince the king out of it. She wants Haman there when his sentence is, 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 is declared so that Haman can meet his end and that there's nobody who will convince the king out of his decision. <clears throat> Finally, before we actually we see the final line in the Talmud, the Malbim, the 19th century commentary, has... He says, there's many reasons given for why she <clears throat> invited Haman. We just offered, I think, like five. He says, these are the three that, that he prefers. Number one, she didn't want Achashverosh to think that this was a personal thing between her and Haman. If she asked right then in the throne room, or if she only invited Achashverosh to the feast and asked without inviting Haman, it might seem that she has personal hate for Haman, which it could be she did, but she didn't want Achashverosh to think that or to realize that. So she invites Haman as well. This is not a personal thing. When I'm going to beseech you for the lives of my people and of, of myself, it's not because it's nothing to do with, it's not a personal uh, vendetta against Haman. Look, I like him. He can come to my feast. And now I'm still going to ask you to kill him. That's 
one, another reason why she invites Haman. Num reason number two that the Malbim likes is that she didn't want Haman to have any chance to respond. Like we sort of similar to what we saw in the number of the answers of the Talmud, she wanted him present so that he wouldn't have a chance to respond. He would be immediately executed. And that's also how things will play out. And we'll talk more about that when it does. And finally, an interesting idea, the Malbim says she wanted Haman to reach the top because he says that that's how sort of mazel works, luck or a person's trajectory. If somebody is on the rise, so they rise until they hit the top and then they fall. And Haman had not yet hit the top yet because he had not yet been invited to, you know, to, to the Queen's Feast. He was, he was almost there. He was almost at the top of the world. This would put him at the top of the world. And we'll see, we see that he, he will say this. Haman himself will, you know, this, is, this will be like the, the, final, the final step for him. So she wanted to bring him to that final step. And then, then his mazel would change. Then his luck will change. And so she invites Haman to the feast. Now the, the Talmud concludes, so going back to this passage in the Talmud, and it says, Rabbi Baravua once happened upon Elijah the prophet, Eliyahu Hanavi. Yeah, he met up with him. And he said to, he, he, he had an encounter with Eliyahu Hanavi with Elijah the prophet. And Rabbi Baravua said, which of all these answers are right? Like I said, there are 12 answers in the Talmud for why she invited Haman. So, she, so this rabbi asked Eliyahu, Elijah the prophet, which is the correct answer? So what's the real reason that she invited Haman? So Eliyahu said all of them. Esther was motivated by all of these reasons that were stated by these rabbis, the Tanaim and the Amoraim, all these different answers that the Talmud gives. Now, does that mean that Esther thought of all these things? She had 12 ideas going on in her head as she made this decision. That's what it seems to say. But the Maharal says that that's not what it means. What it means is that we that the, the Talmud elsewhere teaches us that as Esther entered the king's throne room, she was gripped with Ruach HaKodesh, with divine providence. And she was guided by divine providence. And it was the divine providence that had all of these ideas. All of these ideas were true. All of these reasons are reason, were good reasons not to ask right now, good reasons to invite Haman to this feast. And it was for all these reasons that the divine providence had it that she would ask and invite both Ahasuerus and Haman to the feast. Now, a very important idea with regards to all of this is that I think we can say that whatever the reason was that she did it, whatever the reason was that she did not ask right then, and rather she waited, the real reason was because there are very important events that have to happen still. Ahasuerus has to realize that Mordechai saved his life and never got rewarded. Haman has to build a gallows for Mordechai and want to try to hang Mordechai. And that's going to upset the king. And that's all going to lead to Haman's downfall. And so if you don't have this delay, then who knows how events would have played out. If she had asked right now, let's hang Haman, 
Achashverosh would be like, Haman, my favorite guy in the world. I'm not hanging him. Off with your head, Esther, right? It might not have worked. So whatever the reason that she thought of, whatever reasons we can say, the reason was that God's hand is guiding events so that there's a delay in order that the next events of the next day or so can still play out, which are going to be game-changing events. That's ultimately the reason from a you know, broader outside perspective. When we look back, ultimately the reason why she didn't ask now was so that events could play out in the way that they did. One more important point here, you know, the Megillah doesn't mention God's name. And the idea is that God was hidden throughout the story of Purim. And it's for us to look at the story and the string of events and see God in the story. Some commentaries understand also, and this is what the Yosef Lekach says, based on a verse at the end of the Megillah, that this Megillah was being written for the chronicles of Persia and Medea. And the and Mordechai and Esther felt that if they would thank God in the Megillah, Achashverosh might not take too kindly to that. You're thinking, you're, you think your God saved you? I saved you. You should be thanking me for this. And so that's why they don't write about God explicitly. But says the Yosef Lekach and many others, but we do find that they inserted God's name hidden into the Megillah in a number of places. And one of them is our verse right here. If you turn back to page one, so it says in verse four, and Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today. And the Hebrew for let the king and Haman come today is Yavo HaMelech V'Haman Hayom. And the first letter of each of those four words is a Yud and a Hey and a Vav and a Hey, which spells out God's four letter name. And then, if you turn to the next page again, in Megillah's Esther chapter five, when Haman is about to meet his end, it says in the, where the, this is the second feast and Haman is about to be sentenced to death. It says chapter five, verse seven, and the king arose in his fury from the wine feast to the orchard garden. And Haman stood to beg for his life of Queen Esther, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. He saw that this was his end. And what is the Hebrew for he saw that evil was determined against him? Ki chalsa elav hara'a. And the last letter of each of those words, ki, yud, chalsa, hey, elav, vav, hara'a. Hey is again God's four letter name. Says the Yosef Lekach, when Haman was at his highest peak, we see sort of where the beginning of his end was that when he was at his highest peak. We have the, the four letters of God's name at the beginning of those words, Yavo HaMelech Haman. let the king and Haman come to the queen's feast. That's Haman at his highest peak. And then when Haman reaches his very, the end, he's, 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 he's about to meet his end. There again, we have God's name here. It's at the end of the letters because this is, this is the end of Haman showing us that this is God guiding all of these events. Okay, we still have a few more verses in this chapter we have to get through, and we have a few more minutes, so great. Verse five, so Esther says, let the king and Haman come to a feast. So verse five, and the king said, rush Haman to do Esther's bidding, right? Like we said, they, this was, the food was ready. It's time to go right now, bring Haman. 
And the king and Haman came to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And the king said to Esther during the wine banquet, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. So again, here we are. They're at the feast. We asked, why did she wait? Why didn't she ask before? We gave answers. She wanted Haman there. She wanted to be at the feast. Well, now we're at the feast, right? So now it's time to ask. This is her moment. But again, verse 7, then Esther replied and said, my petition and my request are as follows. If I have found favor in the king's eyes, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and to fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the banquet that I will make for them, and tomorrow I will do the king's bidding. So she says, I'm not ready yet. And so she doesn't ask. Why doesn't she ask? What is she waiting for? So certainly you can say she hasn't yet ensnared Haman. She, whatever it is that she's waiting for hasn't happened yet. That's one idea. The Yosef Lekach zeroes in on a few words here. He says, it says in verse six, and the king said to Esther during the wine banquet. So why does it say that it's the wine banquet? Why not just the banquet? Mishteh hayayim. A mishteh, in English we can translate as banquet, but mishteh comes from the word to drink. So if it's a mishteh, it's like saying the drinking party of wine. Well, what other kind of drinking party is there, right? So, I mean, you, I'm sure you could use your imagination and th think of other ones, but that, you know, it's clear that the, that drinking party means wine. So why does it say that the, the wine banquet, the drinking party of wine? Um, and so he says that, remember, Esther's still fasting. This is the, the second day of the fast here. She, she's not eating with them. And in order to make it really enjoyable, it, it's not going to work if she's not drinking. So, so, she, so here Ahasuerus is saying, you know, it's a wine feast. To Esther, have a drink. And she says, no, no, no I'm, not, I'm not in the mood. You know, I, no, thank you. And she's passing up on it. So why didn't she break her fast? Maybe once they committed, they were fast for three days. She didn't think it should be broken now. So she's not going to eat, but then it's kind of a damper on the party a little bit. So the king is not in as joyful a mood. It's not yet time to ask. And, uh, and he says, he explains that that's, she saw that, that the king wanted her together to drink. And so she says in verse eight, tomorrow I will do the king's bidding. So some understand that to mean tomorrow I'll tell you what I'm asking for. Yosef Lekov says it means tomorrow I'll drink. Tomorrow I'll do your bidding and I'll drink as you, as you wish. And we actually see, I don't have the verse here, but in the next chapter when she does come to the feast or in the following chapter, when they come back the next day, it says, and Haman and the king came to drink with Esther. So she was ready to drink the next day because it was right at the end of her fast. So that's one, one idea of why she doesn't ask now because it doesn't have the right uh, the the right ambiance, the right mood because she is still fasting. Um, furthermore, um, let's just see how she responds. So she says, "My petition." First of all, he asks, "What is your petition and what is your request?" So. 
Um, what's the difference between a petition and a request? Those are English words. In Hebrew, it's she'ela and bakasha, two words for asking and, and requesting. So the, the, again, different opinions as to what the difference is. The Malbim understands she'ela is something small. Bakasha is something big. So the king is asking her, what do you want that's small? What do you want that's big? And what she responds is, Esther replied, my petition and my request are as follows. Verse eight, if I have found favor in the king's eyes, the first thing I want is to find favor in your eyes. Whatever it is that I ask for, I want to find favor in your eyes. And that's, you know, that's going to sound good to the king, right? That Ahasuerus will appreciate that. And what she ends up asking for is that they come back to another feast the next day. And she says, tomorrow I will do the king's bidding. The Malbim who understands those words not to mean tomorrow I will drink, but tomorrow I will tell you what my request is. So again, she's saying, I'll tell you because you, you're asking me. You know, I'm doing it for you. You know, you're asking me. It's your bidding that I tell you. Okay, tomorrow I will, I will do your bidding. And, uh, and just going back to the point about the, the wine. So again, we come back to the point we made before, which is if the reason why she didn't ask now was because she couldn't drink. Well, again, that was what she thought the reason was. The real reason was because now by not asking today, well, tonight, what's going to happen is Haman's going to try to hang, hang Mordechai and Mordechai is going to get rewarded. And he's going to get carried around on a horse as we'll go through the whole story. But the real reason is because there's so much more that has to happen before she asks in order for everything to work out. So she thinks maybe the reason is because she can't drink and it's not the right time. But it's really not the right time for much more than that, as we will find out. Um, okay, let's just finish up the chapter here. So Haman went out on that day, happy with a cheerful heart. But when Haman saw Mordechai in the king's gate, and he neither rose nor stirred because of him, Haman was filled with wrath against Mordechai. So still Mordechai won't stand up for him. Haman thinks, you know, maybe before Mordechai wouldn't stand up for him because he thought he had the protection of Esther, who he had raised. Now, after Esther invites me to the feast, Esther clearly likes me more than Mordechai. She's clearly on my side and still Mordechai won't, won't bow to me. Now, Haman is even more angry at Mordechai. But Haman restrained himself. He doesn't do anything against Mordechai. Some understand it means he wanted to go with the king right away. He doesn't go with the king. He comes home and he sent and brought his friends and Zeresh, his wife. And Haman recounted then to them the glory of his riches and the multitude of his sons and all the ways that the king had promoted him. And then he had exalted him over the princes and the king's servants. He has so much, he says. Some understand he was trying to cheer himself up. Others, it's just for comparison's sake. He has so much. But then he says, but all this is worth nothing to me. Every time I see Mordechai, the Jew singing in the king's gate. Haman has everything. He has everything. But when you're looking for honor, honor is, doesn't really exist. There's no, it's, 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 in, it's in your imagination. And if, you, if you're missing any of it, then you don't have any of it because it's just this imaginary dream that a person chases. He doesn't have all the honor because there's one person that won't bow to him. And he's very upset by this. So he says, so verse 14, and Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said, let them make a gallows 50 cubits high, and in the morning say to the king that they should hang Mordechai on it, 
and go to the king to the banquet joyfully. The matter priest Hamangang, he made the gallows. So we'll just close with two ideas about this. So previously, Hamang wanted to kill Mordechai, but he said, I can't. It doesn't look good. For me to go after one guy for not bowing to me, what are people going to think of me? So he was going after all the Jewish people. So now his family advised him. They say, don't worry about it. We have an idea. Make a huge gallows and hang him in the morning. This way, what you're really doing is you're making an example of him, that this is someone who doesn't follow the king's orders. That's how you take care of someone who, who, who you need to make an example of. This isn't a personal thing. Make it, make it to the, you know, for, to, this is to send a message to the people. What happens if you disobey the king's orders? Because that's what you do to someone who disobeys the king's orders. You make sure everybody can see them hanging. You hang them in the mornings so that when everybody comes out, they see him. That's how you do it. That was the advice that his family gave him. But the, the, the Bir Agra, the Vilna Gon, adds something amazing. He says that, but there was more to it. Haman knew he was going to be at, at a feast with Esther the next day. He wanted to make sure that he could see Mordechai hanging from the palace. And so he wanted this to be a very high gallows. That's why they advised him, make sure the gallows is 50 cubits high. But really, this was Haman's undoing because, because the, the gallows was visible from the palace. So that's why, we'll see when we get there, but that's why the servant of Ahasuerus was able to say, behold, there is the gallows that Haman has made for Mordechai. And Ahasuerus could see it with his own eyes that there was in fact a gallows there. And so this was all part of God's engineering, God's plan, that Ahasuerus would be able to see the actual gallows that Haman had made for Mordechai, who had saved the king's life. Ahasuerus is not too happy about that. And that is part of what leads to the end of, of Haman's life. And, uh, and if you look at that, I stuck on the, the picture from the, from the flyer, because that goes with this. If you pay attention closely, you can see from the window, the gallows in the background. That was the, the hit, part of the hidden miracle of the Purim story. All right, we'll stop there.